Good morning, everyone. I like to say family because it feels like family. It's always family here. Um, so my name's Adrian. It's nice to be in a, serving you in a different capacity today. I'm usually the one playing the guitar. Um, but if you, yeah, if you don't know me, um, I'm Adrian. I'm married to Nikki. If you don't know Nikki, uh, you haven't met her yet, you're going to. She knows your name. She knows <laughs> your family history. She knows about five people that you know in common, and she's going to be introducing herself soon. Um, she's amazing like that. We are completely opposites, and that's what God tends to do. He tends to bring opposites together. Um, together, we have four incredibly unique kids, Noah, who's 14, Callan, who's 11, and then we have a three-year-old and a nine-month-old, who's probably asleep in Granny's arms over there. Um, so between worship and the kids, I don't often get to um, actually hear the whole preach. <laughs> so often, especially in this series, this Kingdom of Heaven series, I've been like, okay, I need to go and listen to these and like catch up a bit. So instead of just relying on me, can we call out some things that we've heard over the past few weeks? So if I said the Kingdom of Heaven is, what comes to mind? Mustard seed. Yeast, kingdom of yeast. It's growing. Men? <laughs> Net. Hundreds. So, all these things that everybody's kind of pulled out about what the kingdom of heaven is. So, put a little list together, which is kingdom of heaven is a mystery. It's inevitable. It's at work in us. It's for all of us, humanity. It's unexpected. It's contrary to what we expect. It's based on the work of Jesus. It's a treasure, and it will cost us. It's secure, stable. It's unshakable. It's spiritual and practical. And this kingdom of heaven is repentance and forgiveness, as we heard last week from Glenn. And so I want to pick up from that sort of vein, um, and I want to add one main theme that I feel God was putting on my heart in this scripture that I want to share, and that's unashamed generosity. So I want to look at this and how Jesus presented this in a parable form, and then I want to look at what it means for us as a body right now, not just in our personal capacity, but as we've been singing us, we, our, like what does this mean for us as liberty? So we'll put up the, the scripture, it's Matthew 21 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. And when he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And then about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. So he said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more. 
but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. So I want to break this into sort of three parts. Firstly, let's look at the laborers. Um, now, I found that there's a bunch of different kinds of people here, um, probably in different kinds of situations and circumstances, and they're all sort of found by the landowner at different times. Um, so I'm going to ask that we keep a couple of questions in mind. If we had to put ourselves into this story, where do you want to fit in? Where do you really fit in? And who do you identify with as we go through this? So at dawn, early in the morning, there's a crop of laborers who are eager to work. If you think about their circumstance, whether through desperation or diligence, they are there early to get the best jobs. Assume that they would want to make sure that they are chosen. Um, and out of a bunch of possible employees, these are probably the ones that are going to get chosen first. It's kind of like picking sides on a playground. Certain people immediately seem like a good choice. They're either stronger or they're cleverer, they're more attractive, but they also might just be quick-witted or more cunning or more confident, maybe more pushy, maybe a bit more forward. There's a whole bunch of different reasons that these people would be picked first. So this is group A. Um, so you remember these little characters? A whole bunch of Mr. Men and Little Miss. So these sort of symbolize the group A. Um, generally speaking, they're picked first. And whether they're proud about that or not, that's another story. But if you are one of those sort of people, you're probably used to being picked first. You're probably kind of got, like, that's generally what happens. You're not usually picked last. You're kind of one of the first people. Um, so in this sense, they probably have more experience. Um, they're probably more prepared. Um, they maybe have their own tools already. Um, they're probably a little better off than most others in the workforce. If you think about constantly getting picked first, constantly getting a full day's wage, not struggling, getting better, getting learning more, they're probably right up there. Um, that's not entirely a given. They may have more dependence, more responsibilities. Um, maybe they have problems managing their money. But they've got this random privilege of always being picked first. Um, so that's the first group. So then we have group B. So this text says that Around 9 a.m., Master goes back and, and finds another bunch of laborers. Um, so these guys weren't there so early. Uh, maybe they just couldn't. Maybe they sometimes are there quite early. But I'm going to generalize quite a bit through this, so just forgive me for that. But these are the maybe not so over-eager go-getter types. They're more the general norm, the average, the not in a, in a bad way, but just in a... I'm going to be there a reasonable time. Like the workday starts at 8 o'clock. I'm going to be there at 8 o'clock, and there's going to be jobs, and that's going to be fine. 
Um, but they're good workers. They're dependable, they're reliable, you can trust them. There's nothing funny going on. They're like consistent. Um, they're the guys that keep the lights on. Um, and it's probably where most of us would fall into. We fulfill our role, we cock our time, we do a decent job, but we do, like, we leave as soon as possible. We don't go all hours of the night or put in that extra all the time. Um, but in comparison, they probably have much better family lives. They probably have a better work-life balance. Um, so we're kind of like the good level. So then we get to the third group, which is the 12 o'clock and 3 p.m. group. Now, I'd wager that these guys are a bit of a mixed bunch. Uh, but maybe the, the below average kind of guys, um, they're kind of used to being picked towards the end for various reasons. Maybe they're just weaker, less appealing, smaller. Um, maybe they're just happy-go-luckies and don't really care. They're not phased by working all day. Um, maybe some of them can't really be trusted and not so, yeah, not so legitimate. Um, maybe these laborers are ones that happen to make bad decisions more often. Like maybe they prioritize other things like drinking or gambling or golf or cycling or surfing. I don't know. <laughs> um, certain things just take for our shots fired. Sorry. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, they are found in the middle of the day. And the master says, go into the field. Then we get to the last group, and which we don't have a slide for because I don't think there's kid-friendly Mr. Men and <laughs> little miss of these group. And I say I'm totally generalizing, but it's four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Like, what are you doing still looking for work? <laughs> like, I mean, the day's ended as, as we read in the parable. It's the end of the day. Like, what are you doing? You're either on the side where you've been hung over all day and you're just like, oh, I need to get some money and so I can get the next fix or get money for the night shelter, that sort of situation. Or you're in desperation. Like, there's something drastic going on that you can't get there in the morning for whatever reason. So there's like two different sides that I want to sort of group together, not just generalize that it's just the bad group, but there's serious things that we deal with in our lives. Um, and the landowner comes around and asks them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they're like, man, no one wants to hire us. And it's like, mm, yeah, okay. Like maybe for one side, but the other side are like, dude, weren't you there at the beginning of the day? Like, wasn't the landowner coming through repeatedly? If you were there, you would have been hired. So there's a line, line there where they're possibly just lying. Um, and the second case that maybe they're that sort of person that has two left hands and two left feet and just totally gets picked last all the time. Like they're just the guy that you don't want on the team because he's more going to cost you than do anything else. So there's a bit of a, a mixed bag in that last, um, last group. But you get the framework that I'm painting with these laborers. They are, there's not just faceless workers being hired. There's stories behind them. There's circumstances they're in. Um, and they represent us. They represent us sitting here, humanity as a whole. Um, we ha all have successes and failures and things going on. And more so than just being one of those things, we are many of those things in different places. So on the outside, we're 
Group A, everything's together. We're fine, clever, smart, strong. But our lust as men is a group D. And for ladies, maybe it's the judgment of others. It's group D. You might look like everything's fine and great and you're perfect, but in your heart, there's a bunch of group Ds going on. So I'm going to take a sip of water and I just want to pause there and just think about that. Just think about where we are in those sort of, those sort of areas. So that was part one. So part two is then looking at the master or the, the landowner. Um, and it's clear that he's representative of God. Um, and a lot of what I'm going to highlight will show glimpses of him, but I don't think it entirely speaks to him. We are talking about a, a human in the story. So let's start at dawn. He's going out to find workers. Now, what do you imagine this master looks like? I'm pretty sure if you read over this and like have a visual mind like I do, that you're thinking he's like smart Hebrew ground, like he doesn't look like a laborer, he's like well-kept with his beard or whatever. Um, but he almost exudes a presence that he's not a worker, he's a, a, a master, he's a landowner. Um, so if we have that image, don't we think that he has employees to go out and get laborers like there's a level of he's at the top he owns the land so surely he's got foremen or whatever to go and get his laborers and the the story still says he calls his foreman later on but what is he doing he's being hands-on he cares about the selection he's making he's not generally saying get people to come in he's going and saying hey you come hey you come so he's hands-on with his laborers. Um, but he goes down early, which means that he's also that go-getter type because he's up early because he knows that the best employees are going to be there early. So he's out there. Um, and when he encounters them, he meets them with what they want to know. He's going to give them the daily wage and, and this is how much it's going to be. And you go off into my fields. Um, and maybe that type A bunch are like, yep, that's hundreds, everything's above board, but like the back of their mind, they're like, yeah, well, I'm going out early. Maybe there'll be a bit more at the end of the day or something like that. But they agree on the, the daily wage, and, and off they go. And then our landover, landowner, he leaves, maybe goes to breakfast, runs some errands, and then around nine, he's back in the marketplace, um, and he finds more, and he says, you also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right, which isn't what he said to the first group. He says something a bit different. I'll pay you whatever is right. And this is our dependable, average, normal, trusting folk. They're like, mm, cool, hundreds. Like, whatever is right, we'll get, that's fine. So he understands them. He doesn't say the same thing to the first group. He says a different thing to the second group. And so they go off. They're happy to go off into the, the fields to go start working. Um, and then twice more in the afternoon, he comes for our, our group three, um, and if you think about it, this is the random time of the day to start employing people. So, like, he doesn't really do what we would be almost expecting him to do. If you think about what's efficient and what's business-like, like, you go and get your workforce and send them off, and they must, like, get better and faster and do it and, like, go through the day. But this, he's not going out middle of the day twice to go and get some more people. 
which would have knock-on effects. Like there's someone in the field teaching them what to do. So every time someone new comes in, they can't just do what they want. They've got to fit into where the program is. They've got to be shown where to go, where to start. So there's knock-on effects. So at this point, I'm not so sure that this landowner is like on it. <laughs> he's not like, he seems a little like all over the place. He's making decisions um, that are not necessarily the best business decisions or what like a type A person would think is a good way to do things. And that's before we even get to the end of the day when he goes out and hires a whole bunch more people. So we get there and now he's like, he doesn't care what their aunt, like, answer is with um, asking them why do they stand there idle all day. He sends them in. He knows there's an hour. They're going to take 15 minutes to get up to speed. They're going to impact the whole working operation. He sends them in. And they're the people that we don't really want to talk to. They're the people who are either desperate or derelict or like they're the unwanted of society. And he goes and gets them to go into his field and at the end of the day. So that last bit of the story means that master's not predictable. Like he doesn't fit the mold of what we think this landowner should be doing. And then we come to the part of the story that I think Jesus is specifically using to show us the kingdom of heaven. Um, but initially, this is the part that gets our back up. This is the part that we're like, mm, don't quite, doesn't, challenges us. So I'll read from verse 8. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more but each of them also received the usual daily wage, one denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Regardless of our generation or race or culture or experience, we are morally offended by what happens here. It goes against what we think is fair. If we took, we have this comparison sometimes, if we took two random island children who had never been exposed to civilization or culture or anything, and we put them in this situation, we got one of them to work the whole day, one of them to work for an hour, and we gave them equal, the same. Pretty sure that first one's gonna be upset. <laughs> like there's something in us that goes, oh, that's not fair, why? So, it seems to be like an innate human quality, which is the big point. And we've, uh, I've often read this, and I've been, I almost skim over it. Like you get it, you read it, and you're like, well, God is the master, we're the laborers, and like, that's okay. God's God, I'm bad, I just need to deal with it and accept it and move on. Um, but I don't think Jesus used that parable and that sort of thing to just shame all of humanity in one foul swoop and just be like, you're all terrible. Like, I don't think that's entirely what he was trying to do or at all what he was trying to do. Um, it's what we would do. That's what man would do. But it's not what God would do because his ways are so much higher than ours. And the master replies to this grumbling group and he says, friend, I am doing you no wrong. 
Do you not agree with me for, did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So firstly, friend. We're the laborers. He's the master. We're not friends. <laughs> we wouldn't be there if he wasn't paying us. So he's the boss, but he starts friend, which means that he wants to be there regardless of whether he's paying you or not. And he's leveling the playing field. He's saying, like, wait, let's just talk eye to eye. So, and he says then that, well, then he states facts. He says, I've done you no wrong. I haven't cheated anybody. I haven't gone back on my word. No one's lost out. Everything is above board. Everything is as it should be. It's morally correct. But then he says, are you envious because I am generous? Yes. Like that's a stab in the heart because we are. And, and that's what our, why we, our backs get up when we read that. We are envious because of that generosity and we feel it's unfair, which is nonsense. It's not unfair. We know it's right in the sense of there's nothing funny going on. He's just being over the top. But we feel it's unfair. And Jesus is addressing this epic human nature, sin nature condition with that simple sentence. It's like that jealousy makes you nasty. Like he's calling us out in one little sentence or are you envious because i am generous we shouldn't be but yes we are like lord why <laughs> like why i don't want to be but i can't if if you say that you're not you're lying because you are that's in our in ourselves and i want to just pause there on that point and read james 4 1 to 4 which says what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Is it not that you desire and do not have, so you murder? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So there's bigger picture here. It's bigger than the surface feelings we have of unfairness. Jesus is calling us to face this sin nature and in a very simple form. And it's like, as I said, it's one like you glance over. It's easy to miss. Um, and yeah, we say, you're God, I'm wretched. You should do what you want. But he's calling us friend first. So he's not saying, like, I'm God, you're bad, just do that. He says, friend, and he calls us to his side. So he's calling us into his world. He's calling us into his kingdom, and he's calling us to see this simple situation with a holy perspective, with an eternal perspective. He's saying, look at your feelings. Look what you are, how you are responding to this, and, like, recalibrate understand your passions and your fleshly desires and realize that I'm calling you to be different. Like it's a choice. There's a, 
upside-down kingdom at play here. He's calling us to be different. And there's different ways we can do that and different ways that that comes into being for all of us. But in this story, if we look at these laborers and imagine that one of those lost was a woman who just lost her husband. Maybe she had a bunch of kids. Maybe she was not well. Maybe the kids were not well. Maybe she had spent the whole day looking after them. She's got a bit of energy, so she goes out, and she happens to be caught up in this, by this landowner to go and work for an hour. So she's got barely anything. She's just got enough energy to work this hour. And imagine you're the group A, and you know her situation. You see what's happening, and then you see at the end of the day, you see the landowner give her a full day's wage. Like, you're human. If you see that, you're going to be like, oh my goodness. You're going to get your one, you're like, oh, whatever. Like, look what he just did for her. It changes the game. Like, nothing changed there. Nothing changed in that story, but our perspective of it is completely changed. It's completely different. Um, we wouldn't be so angry we wouldn't be so upset. And I think that's the landowner's perspective, whether that's real, like, it's not the point that that's real or not, but he's got that perspective. He knows those people at the end and their circumstances better than we do. We don't see that. And he doesn't need to explain it to us. Like, yes, he could. He could explain like, why he's doing this, and he does. He says, well, it's mine to do with as I please. But if he's got this extra perspective, he's in, he doesn't need to explain it to us. He can be unashamedly generous, and there's no reason that he needs to validate it with us. Um, so Jesus is addressing the root of our sin with this simple act of immense generosity, this unashamed generosity. And it is an example of this upside-down kingdom. It's an example of what the kingdom looks like when it's at work in us and what the result will be. Um, we are looking at a man in this parable. We're not looking at God. We're looking at a man who chose to do this, which is the result of a kingdom at work in him. And I also know that we have read this passage and sort of um, we've thought of that whole people coming into the kingdom. So there's this, like the, as Josh said in prayer this morning, that, that criminal getting crucified with Jesus, end of his life, been bad, says, remember me. Jesus says, you are going to be in paradise. His dying breath was his salvation. So we read that whole thing and we tend to think well the last will be like well that we tend to take it as that sort of meaning where the person who's saved at the end will still inherit the kingdom just like the person who was gave his life at five years old and lived his whole life devoutly for the lord it's going to be the same but that last line so the last will be first and the first will be last it doesn't really work in that analogy for me where if you've lived your life for the lord your whole life your rewards in the kingdom are going to be great, way bigger than the dude who was saved on his deathbed. So you're not going to be lost in the kingdom. Like, you all have the kingdom, but you're not going to be lost. Your 
your kingdom blessings, and as Jesus speaks about this in our rewards, they are going to be greater because you've sinned less. Whereas this murderer has, he has to answer for these things. So, I believe that Jesus is pointing to this unashamed generosity when he talks about, when he said that last line. The one who hoards his things and his time and his gifts in this world, he's the one focusing on himself. And the one who gives whenever and gives however is focused on others. So in this way, the last, who has less because he has given more, will receive more in the kingdom. And the one who retains his earthly blessings will find himself lacking in kingdom blessings. And that, to me, is this key ingredient of God's kingdom being established in both us and externally around us is that the generosity is a big thing. It's not just this generosity we think like, oh, we're giving away money, we're giving away food, we are hand-me-downs, oh, we're being so generous, like we're giving from excess. Um, And that generosity is not necessarily from it's not about the material things. I don't think that's the point. That's one facet, and by all means, there's scripture that says we need to give when we are asked. But I think with this, God's talking more than just stuff. Like being generous in our hearts is different. And it's generous with our time, generous with our love, generous with our respect. And I'm pretty sure that God's given me this message because it's like I'm the worst at this. Like, you can ask my wife, she'll confirm that. Like, I'm very, I'm very self-focused. I'm, and it's something God's constantly working on me with. It's, I look at my wife and she like gives people lifts and she'll like, oh, we can give this, like people coming to the gate. Dude. <laughs> Our whole house gets given away across the fence. No, too. But I'm the one who answers the bell. No, I'm busy. No, I'm busy. No, it's not a good time. Come back later. And so you know he's going to end up with more kingdom blessings in this one. But it's it's real. Some of us are way better at giving, and some of us are not so good at giving. And in this parable of this unashamed generosity, God's calling us to look to the kingdom. He's calling us to change our perspective so that we're looking at people and our situations and everything we're going through in this world with this kingdom perspective and specifically with generosity. Um, This true generosity seeks to bless others in any and all areas and circumstances. And it's a different way of living. And God's great in how he gives us examples of this. Like, obviously, the gospel absolute unashamed generosity, sending your son to die for all of humanity. But then also in parenting. In, and I'm maybe being a bit broad strokes here, but you can't have a good parent without them being generous. It doesn't really work. You've got to be generous with your kids if you want to raise them well. You've got to give your time, you've got to give your resources, you've got to give your stuff away so that they can prosper. You've got to deny yourself, your boat or 
new bicycle or new set of golf clubs. You've got to deny that stuff so you can put to work for their college fund because you want to give them the best life. Um, and I really felt like God was pushing that example on us where he's so gracious in his fathering of us and he calls us to be the same, calls us to be generous. And it's in that vein of parenting that I want to speak to the second point of today, which is what does this generosity look like for us as a body? So in unpacking the scripture and preparing, um, I have, I'm used to it with worship. I'm like, you've got to lay yourself down. You've got to, I want to hear God. I don't want to come with some clever idea of like, I want to do this song. I want God to speak so that we can worship him together. Um, so I take the same approach to trying to prepare this message. Um, and I was like, well, Lord, I just need a main point. I need, where, where are you, what are you trying to say through this? And, I'm, like, and I'm, I'm praying and reading and praying and reading, and I write something down that immediately bothered me. <laughs> immediately, I didn't feel like it was, I didn't feel like it was, I felt like it was bigger than me. I felt like it was presumptuous, and, and quite frankly, I didn't have any place in making that sort of statement. So, with it bothering me, I went and spoke to Glenn and to Philip. Um, I got a moment with them, and I was like, oh, well, here. And so, like, they're experienced preachers. They're supposed to go, doof, doof, that way. <laughs> That's what they needed to do. They needed to correct me and send me on. Um, and they pretty much did the kingdom thing, and, like, they told me what I, the unexpected. They said, no, we feel like this is what, this is something of God. You are listening. So the statement I wrote down was, give birth to our first child. Now, that's not a human pregnancy, and it's definitely not ours. I said first, not fifth, <laughs> just to point that out. Um, but I wrote down this, give birth to our first child. And what I felt God was saying was that we as Liberty are pregnant with our first child, with our first church plant. I felt God saying that we are maturing. We have matured from infancy through teenage years to young adulthood under new gen. And he planted us out. He said, you're old enough to stand on your own two feet. Um, and I couldn't check this feeling of this pregnancy. And um, as I put it to Philip and to Glenn, they've had a similar feeling from a bunch of us. There's a similar sort of vein going through, and I'm going to read something that Sharon, my sister, sent to them, to Glenn and to the elders, like two months ago, before, oh, I didn't have any clue that she was sending this, so I'm just going to read what she sent. Um, in Prayer for Liberty, a couple of days ago, I had a picture of a, quite a large red pomegranate hanging on a tree. You could see it was heavy for the branch, and there was an emphasis on the size and readiness of it. I personally don't know much about this fruit at all. I didn't actually know it was a pomegranate at first. But when I looked up what I saw, it was very clear that it was indeed a pomegranate. And there was also a significant emphasis on the amount of seeds inside it, ready to burst. So reading up about this fruit, it seems biblically, uh, it's, it seems biblically it is known for and symbolic of a few things. So it's mentioned in Exodus 28, 33 to 34, when God is instructing Moses about the hem of the robe for Aaron, the high priest. 
It's also included in the decor for Solomon's temple. It's spoken of in Song of Solomon, speaking to the beauty of the bride. It's mentioned in the story where the spies go and inspect the land, and the Lord promised them and brings um, that the Lord had promised them, and they bring back these large fruits, which speak of God's provision, faithfulness, and blessing. And lastly, it seems it is also symbolic of abundance, fertility, and blessing. And that's what she felt in just praying for liberty. So, God is speaking through his parables and through the gifts that he has instilled in this body. And I'm sharing this out of obedience and not with any specific directive or order or time frame or like any sort of like plan whatsoever. When I was praying through this, it just had a sense of, it's just that. There's something growing inside this body. And that pomegranate image of these seeds, many seeds being ready to burst forth, it just tied in with that 100%. And what I wanted to ask is that we start thinking about where those seeds are duplicated. Like, who's the next Justine who can run the whole church <laughs> and keep Glenn on a leash? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, who's the next Michiel Anik who are actioning and leading and pastoring his people? Who's the next Nikki who's welcoming people with these amazing hugs and love? Who's the next Matt and Philip who are teaching us from the Word so clearly and passionately? I have no idea what it looks like, but I think God is calling us to start thinking and to start having these questions and to not be worried about it, but be excited about the fact that we are pregnant. Um, so I'm not, yeah, I know that sounds a bit funny, but, uh, <laughs> but I'm not suggesting what this child will look like or what will, when it will arrive or how it will come to be or any of that. I'm just saying that it's going to be birthed out of our unashamedly generous spirits and hearts that God has sowed into this body. To Him be the glory for all of that. Um, he's at work. It's not some clever thing that we're doing. We've just got to be part of His kingdom. That's all He's calling us to do. Um, and that's where I want to leave us. I want to leave us with those questions. I want to leave us with some food for thought and an extremely poignant and specific prayer point <laughs> going forward from here. Um, and I'm going to hand over to Matt to close, but I'd like us to pray together. I'd like this message and this, this idea, I'm laying it before you, and I want us to lay it before God together. So why don't you join me as we pray to our Father. Lord, you are so generous with us. Lord, you are so graceful. You are abundant in mercy. Lord, you see us as those laborers in their different places. You see each of us where we are in our circumstances, in our situations. You identify with us. There's nothing that surprises you, Lord. There's nothing that you don't know about. And Lord, we want to come and ask you, Holy Spirit, to show us those places that you are wanting to work. 
those places where we are a group D, where we're not thriving, where things are not going well, where we are holding on to things of ourselves, where you're wanting us to lay them down. Holy Spirit, would you come and work in those areas? Would you come and highlight them? We want to be your friends, Lord Jesus. We want to be in relationship with you. And we want to come as your children. We want to come as your followers, Lord Jesus. We want to come as your worshipers. And we want to lay this message and these words in front of you. Whatever you are doing in this church, would it be for your glory? I pray that you would speak specifically about what you are doing and where you are wanting us to grow, that we wouldn't get ahead of ourselves and we wouldn't start putting our humanly things in place, but that we would just be listening, that we would be waiting. Whether you say yes or no or wait, you're worthy. And we want to be listening to you, Lord. We want to be tentative to what you are saying in this message and in our lives as well. We want to be surrendered to you. Father, would you bless this body of yours? Would you bless your children? Would you draw us closer to you? Would you let these words penetrate our hearts as we go from here? And would you let the things that are not of you fall away completely? Would they not even be in our memories anymore? But in all of this, Lord, would you help us, Holy Spirit, as you've been sent to do, to turn our eyes to Jesus, to turn our eyes to you, the founder and perfecter of our faith and of our hope. Would we be looking to you? We thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your unashamed generosity for us. We bless your name, Lord. And we pray these things. In your name, the name above all names. Amen. Amen.